Hello fellow sports photographers. My name is Dean Mukteropoulos, a Raw Sports Snapper, and I'm a sports photographer working full-time for Getty Images. Welcome to the Photography Philosophy Podcast, where I have open discussions with the world's best sports photographers. This will give you an insight behind the long lenses from the men and women who fill our back pages, websites, and magazines with amazing sports imagery. My guess is that this will be one of many podcasts you listen to, so you know the drill. Get in contact with me via Twitter at AllSportsSnapper or my website AllSportsSnapper.com with any questions or suggestions. In this 14th episode, I will deviate from my normal interview system and will speak about my experiences shooting the 2016 Dakar Rally, which ran through Argentina and Bolivia about 9,500 kilometers through forests, high plains, mountains, deserts, gravel or dirt roads, and the high altitude flats in Bolivia. This event is not for the faint-hearted and definitely one of the most spectacular on the sporting calendar. Now, I have not been to editing school and I'm not sure what the best or traditional way to do this so with format style or whatever so um, pretty much I'm just going to do a summary a quick summary of each day on the road following the race with my fellow photographer Felipe Treba from EFE the world's largest Spanish speaking news agency and the fourth largest in the world um, and mix in some live sound recordings um, that I had made on the road um, to get it out of the way nice and early, my kit was two 1DX bodies, a 17mm tilt shift lens, a 16 to 35, a 2470, a 70 to 200, a 50mm, a 24mm, a 550EX flash, some pocket wizard remote triggers, and all of that was packed in a very heavy think tank street walker hard drive backpack i will have a link in the show notes as usual to uh, my best images um, and maybe a few other little things which you'll have to find out later um, i hope you enjoy the images as well as the show and again feedback always welcomed let's start the show first of january fly out of shipol it's a 14-hour flight from Amsterdam to Buenos Aires. And apart from the person sitting next to me who had the worst foot odor I've ever smelt, and for 10 of those 14 hours, he did have his shoes off. So thank you very much, stinky footman. You uh, made my journey horrible. 2nd of January. Landed in Buenos Aires at 7 a.m. I took a taxi to the hotel to drop off my bags and then straight to the Technopolis an area set up for events just outside the city center um, to get my accreditation and meet my traveling companions for the next 19 days. It was a reunion of sorts as I spent a lot of time with these guys in uh, close proximity with them over the last few years. I've done, this is my third Dakar. Uh, realizing that the guys wanted to head off straight away, we ended up going back to my hotel to grab my bags with Felipe and with Pablo and Daniele our Dakar drivers. This was all at about 11 a.m. Pick up our bags and then we have a three-hour drive to REC Fez. Now I'm going to get it out early again. My pronunciation of uh, Argentinian and Bolivian cities, towns is not going to be perfect so please save hate mail on pronunciation. Thank you. Um, so yeah, three-hour drive to a place called, near a place called REC Fez for the prologue which is a short stage for the cars, bikes, trucks, and quads we'll all be shooting over the next two weeks. We find a slight jump in the road, and we shot there for a few hours, and it made some nice pictures. Um, like previous years, the locals are out in force. We walk along the road and found different spots, but the jump looked the best. So we stayed there um, for a while, and it was a decent spot for the first day on the road. Um, after we had finished there, dusty and dirty and tired, we drove to the next photo point. Following the race, we camped outside in the forest, close to where the vehicles were expected. Um, we arrived there at 2am. We set up the tents and mattresses on the ground, but it was full of broken branches covered in large spikes. 
I spent 30 minutes clearing the ground under my tent so as not to pop my mattress. January the 3rd, woke up on the ground as my mattress had popped. The distant sound of thunder and hundreds of chickens and roosters didn't let us sleep very long. Under the trees we had set up, not far from us, there were three or four houses. Uh, I didn't see them that night just because it was so dark and no lights on the houses. Uh, once up, I start to pack up my stuff as the rain rolled towards us. My tent, like most of us on this little adventure, um, have pop-up tents. They take seconds to open and a few minutes to pack up, but they're not really designed for heavy rain. Plus, my tent floor had become a storing area for the many thorned branches I missed out on last night's attempted cleanup. We drove three kilometers to the waypoint. The area, the drivers and riders, or pilots as they are called here, must pass. So yeah, the way, waypoint, I'm going to refer to it as a waypoint, or um, uh, pretty much every rider, driver, on every vehicle must go past certain points in the Dakar. So they've given a, a final destination and then there's points that they must pass within a certain distance of. If they miss these points, they get time penalties and obviously more penalties the further um, further down the uh, ranking you become. Um, this, was a, this waypoint was a river crossing which I'd shot at two years ago. The last time I was here though, it was 30 degrees. So it was boiling hot People were swimming in the water and it was quite a festive atmosphere. The race was cancelled due to rain, so um, we took the five hour drive to the Bivouac campsite, as I like to call it, um, the temporary campsite. And uh, the weather cleared up, but it doesn't look good for the next few days. So I've been walking around the um, walking around the uh, the mechanics and got a few pictures but to be honest most of the cars because they didn't even go out today um, there wasn't much work to do on them because obviously they were prepared from the night before so there was a few people sort of tinkering and cleaning things up but most of the cars are um, parked up mechanics are enjoying some quiet time for the first time ever probably on the day one of the Dakar rally because this is the first time in a long time that an actual stage has been stopped due to bad weather um, and so far it's uh, it's a very easy and mild start to the race. January the 4th. Most of the press set up their tents inside a rundown gymnasium our fenced and heavily guarded bivouac is set up on. The unheard of at my previous two Dakars of six hours sleep is only broken once to the symphony of snoring of maybe 10 of my surrounding tents in very close proximity. If I only had the energy to record the sounds, <laughs> I would, it's quite a, it was quite a, a sound to wake up to. Our 5.45 a.m. departure sees us leaving Villa, Via Carlos Paz um, and we head towards our next bivouac located in the Termas de Rio Hondo a racetrack which hosts a motorcycle race and other international events. Our waypoint, which all of the competitors must, must be passing, is nothing too interesting, just a dirt road with fields on one side and high grass on the other. Like always, the different varieties of police and military protect the entrances and vehicles from entering the race route. Even though we are media, and as F.A. and Getty are now regular attendees of this event, we are given an organization 4x4, which is fitted with a roll cage, race seats, race belt harnesses. Um, so yeah, we're, it's pretty much like a race, a race vehicle without the crazy race engine. Um, it's brand, heavily branded. It means that we get access all areas um, of the course, which obviously makes our job a lot easier. We enter near the dirt road track, close to a town called Dean Funes and realize that it's not long till the first bikes will go past. Locals tell us that there's a dip in the road further up so we'll be using um, a disused railway track as um, running adjacent to the road um, to get to that spot. So we bounce along this railroad track um, until we see a gap that gives us a better view. Felipe and I get our cameras out and start to walk to find a spot which is about a kilometer and a half up this dirt road with, like I said, massive fields on one side, high grass on the other. 
it's a nice big smelly mud patch which um, all most of the vehicles can't be avoided um, especially if you're speeding along these dirt roads like a speeding bike or a quad will be expecting will, which we will be expecting very soon uh, we set up and wait and then the first bike he goes a little wide he hits the water and makes a small splash but as the race progresses more and more go through the mud making what looked like a below average shooting day into a good day <laughs> to us. I think we should, uh, you think we're okay here? <laughs> Are we safe? It's fairly, it's fairly, you know, definitely, if, if I see them struggling there, jump. Jump back. Jump. Yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. If, if you see them, you know, you see if they control the pipe or not. If once, once they are there, if they're coming all right, they just accelerate, you know, you see how they... But you see them struggling, jump back, man. You know, the Barreda went into the grass in there. Yeah, he went right wide. That's why if you had your remote there, Whoa. you don't want your camera to be hit by right. But the thing is, you know, the first riders, they, they know what they're doing. Yeah. You know, after number 30, you know. Things get a bit more amateur. Whoa. At some point, I think, when one is going to go into the grass or... Pretty <laughs> 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 sure, man. We stay for a bit, but then the sun and hunger drive us back to our 4x4 for some food and water. Minutes later, a spectator on a quad comes and informs one of our drivers that someone is injured on the road, so Public calls for medical support. We go back and find an Argentinian competitor on the road uh, in pain. Yeah, We shoot a few images, but spend most of our time waving down the other speeding bikes and quads and soon-to-be cars that someone is down. The medical helicopter staff do what they do. We shoot a few images and they take him to the chopper. One spectator tells us that some of the cars we missed are stuck in the mud up ahead. So with a brisk walk in the heat, the good pictures from earlier get better as fans and drivers are pushing cars out of the mud, while some other cars power through the 200 meter of destroyed dirt road. Fans, TV cameramen, and photographers are all covered in mud. One driver, who is stuck, good, and proper, looks at Felipe and asks him to help him push him out of the mud. Felipe looks at me, and without hesitation, I just say in a loud and clear, there's no effing chance I'm getting in there. Felipe smiles and looks back at the driver and tells him that it's against the rules for media or anyone in the organization to help the drivers. Drivers get stuck in the mud. We've seen a helicopter. I don't know who that guy is over there. It could be Peter Hansel or. Yeah, I saw a 3 3 on their number. Uh, I think we should head off. I think we've got dirty and enough pictures. 
Looking around, I stayed cleaner than most as it's day two and I don't want my kit to seize up so early in the event. No other event I have done tests the durability of your kit more than this one does. It's an action-packed day and a massive contrast to yesterday's non-event. As we arrive at the racetrack or the bivouac, um, sunburnt, tired and hungry, tens of thousands of locals stand at the gates and line the fences to watch the free show. The track and pit lanes um, and garages of the racetrack of Rio Hondo are turned into giant offices for the staff of the Dakar, the organizing committee, the media room and the catering hall for all the 3,000 people of this traveling circus. The pit lane is now used to set up our tents. Editing through the day shoot, it's long but enjoyable. But the sunburn is taking effect and a quick meal and it's time to call it a day. It's 1am and the alarm is set for 4.45am. We have a military helicopter journey tomorrow. So Felipe and I, along with some other media, will be doing some photos from the air. The 5th of January. The early start is easy when you know you have a ride in a chopper piloted by experienced military. Shaking Felipe's tent, I waking up eager to make the shuttle to the nearby airport. Six of us and four military run through the safety drill, which is in Spanish, but I've done this a few years back and I know the routine. And what I don't know, I ask. The sky is scattered with dark, large clouds, but the blues, purples and orange glow fill the horizon. But the winding up the motor, the blades spinning above and the fact that we have the door open as we rise into the fresh morning air have me smiling like a little kid in a toy shop. In the military helicopter with Felipe on the day three. We are going to die! We are going to die! <laughs> Vietnam. Vietnam. It's like a Vietnam style, 1970s American ex-military helicopter. You can see the bullets. No bullet holes. <laughs> Think A-Team or Rambo, with the sliding door open and the only thing stopping me from falling out is a well-crafted safety harness. I have two cameras attached with a 2470 and a 7200. The hour-long ride is loud and windy, but the elevated view of the Argentinian countryside silences any complaints which pop up in my head. The chopper pilot knows roughly what we are looking for in terms of our location, so they guess and take a punt on an area which looks good and immediately the spectators sitting trackside come over to, to see us land. We exit and one of the military staff stops and gets them getting too close because as the blades slow down, they drop, making it very dangerous. We leave them to it and walk off to find a spot. A little stream is chosen and I sit and wait. Local farmers and their families are out in good numbers with drinks, picnics, all ready to watch a day of racing. Riders come through and I get some shots I like, but nothing great. But as agreed with the other media, we only will see the first 15 riders. Then we move on to another spot for the arrival of the cars. As we walk to the landing area, the rain starts to fall, but not enough to stop the technical military staff making sure we are safe and they they don't think that the door needs to be closed, which I'm rather happy about. How often do you get to hang out the side of an army chopper? We rise, blowing a few of the camp chairs from the below barbecues over, and making a sharpish turn, I'm looking straight at the treetops, but the wind and powerful blade are spinning meters above my head. It's a wonderful experience. The landscape is beautiful, and my eyes only leave it briefly to see which part of the rattling vintage chopper is vibrating the most. We follow the race and then circle an area and without much notice, we land and are told to get out. So all of us do. They leave us in the middle of a farm field and take off, telling one of the photographers that they need to refuel but have not given us a return time. So we walk to the road and shoot some of the bikes and quads coming through. The farmer and the wife whose field we landed in are sitting in chairs with a table eating and drinking in front and watching the race and don't even seem bothered or phased 
that a large helicopter with six men just got out. It's not a great area for pictures, and with rain falling here and there, we stay close to the drop point so as not to miss or make the military wait for when they decide to return. There is a bus shelter, which we use as a place to leave our bags and extra kit when shooting. It also becomes handy when the rain falls pretty hard for a while, taking away the dust trails the bikes make. The dust added to the photos, so that'll be gone for the cars. Once the rain stops, a few cars go past. It's nothing spectacular. Because there's so many of us and we're all staying fairly close, we all have fairly similar photos. Lightning and thunder go on all around us, so we get nervous about how long we'll be there. Can they fly in a lightning storm? We all doubt it. Plus, I'm not too sure if I want to get into anything, any flying transport with a lightning storm going on. The chopper can't come soon enough. Almost three hours later, the distant thumping throb of large blades advance our way and we make a quick dash to board. Within minutes, we are up and within 20 minutes, we are down again to refuel at a point where we have to wait 40 minutes for the engine to cool before another 30 minute journey to another airport to refuel again for the two plus hour journey to the next bivouac. While an adventure, and yes, it was fun and a little scary at points with turbulence and rain, photo-wise, it's not been a great day, but they all can't be. One thing I must mention that on the journey back to the bivouac, I see white flashes outside the window and we are fairly high up for a while, I thought fatigue was affecting me, um, but then through one of the gaps, for, through one of the many gaps, I should say, in the chopper, um, a small white thing flies and lands on my lap, and here it was realized it was a piece of a butterfly wing. Looking at the windscreen, I could see squashed remains, and now I could see hundreds of thousands of them below and in front of us. I've never, I didn't actually think butterflies got up that high, especially in that kind of weather. In the bivouac, I sort my passport documents for crossing the Bolivian border. Then I sit down to edit my images, also to write notes for this podcast. The days are long and eventful and can blur very, very quickly. The rain hammers down for a solid five hours, putting the power as well as the internet off. It's almost 1am before all the tents are set up, but my alarm is set for 5am. The good thing is that we will return here tomorrow, so no need to pack up all my clothing and tent before we leave. 6th of Jan. No rain this morning and I set up my tent on a military building porch. I am dry and ready to improve on yesterday's average picture day. We are heading into the more barren landscape in the high altitude near Pura Maranca in Argentina, with some of the most vast and beautiful coloured mountains I've seen in all my travels. We arrive a bit late due to roadworks, traffic and miss the leaders but get other riders on the start line. So the 50mm and the 24mm get a good workout. While it's a bit slower to focus than the 2470 and the 7200, the colour and shallow depth they produce make it fantastic to work with. Once the pilots leave, we walk into the course and find spots to shoot the cars. It's still early and the light is softer, so already the orange and brown hills and sands make a great background. I've set up a remote in a position closer to the road with a 1635 on my tripod and will fire it with a pocket wizard as the car goes past. As I am close to the start line, you can almost hear them take off and roar towards me. As I've shot some tighter action over the last few days, I'm shooting wider. I like these kind of shots to be strong landscape photo which would stand on their own and having a vehicle in the frame just adds to the image. The top 20 cars go through and I have what I need so it's a two kilometer walk stacked with all my kits to the finish line which is unusually close to the um, start line. By pure chance, as I arrive shooting the cars, the leading bikes we missed this morning arrive at the finish line, so I look for a spot and wait. Not long in, the first bike comes towards me, followed by the TV helicopter, so I'm able to get both of them in the frame, which is always nice. The first 10 bikes come through, and I follow the 10th one into the mix zone, where TV, radio, and general media do some interviews. I switch back again to the 24mm and the 50mm lens, um, for some strong portraits and uh, general coverage. It's then back to the 4x4 and a two-hour journey back to the bivouac. Driving back down from high altitude and we're driving through an area called Numanca. <laughs> Purmamarca. Purmamarca. Pur Pur yeah. Okay, I'm going to have to write that spelling down later. What does a cat do? Meow? Oh, yeah. 
But but what's the name for that? And now we're stopping at a place where we stopped last year to get some llama burgers. <laughs> Maybe not burgers, but llama or some guinea pig or something something uh, something that you can't get on the menu in the Netherlands anyway. <laughs> I can't resist to order the special of the day. Llama in herb and honey sauce with hand-cut fries and tomato salad. Delicious. After we've eaten here, we leave um, and head down the mountain. We miss the trucks, but as we descend down this um, beautiful mountain range in awe of this magnificent landscape, we see a, a truck broken down, five for one, on the way to the race. Um, there is an organization vehicle here which is helping um, try and repair the truck. Obviously, they were allowed to help, considering it's not actually in the race at the moment. So we've got a Belarusian team who speak broken English and a so the Belarusian team are talking to each other, the French team, the French mechanics are trying to help and everyone speaks very broken English so there's a bit of a miscommunication happening here and there but uh, with five technically minded people it looks like. Sounds like they've got it started. Back in the bivouac, while editing, the drivers, Pablo and Daniele, along with Felipe, decided the three-hour journey to the photo point the next morning, just over the Bolivian border, then the extra five to eight-hour drive to the next bivouac is too much. We did this last year and it was a nightmare. The heat in Argentina, the high altitude of over three and a half thousand meters, the cold air in Bolivia, and add that most of this, these kilometers are on gravel roads, we decided to leave the bivouac that night and we'll stay in a hotel near our next waypoint. We stopped near the border town called La Cuaca and paid too much for a one bedroom with four bunks. I get the top bunk. The internet is slow and half of my images from the day shoot are not sent. But nothing can be done for now, so it's 1am and the alarm is set for 5am. 7th of Jan. The journey the night before was well worth it, as the one hour journey to the photo point, including the border crossing to Villazon in Bolivia, feels like an easy one. Arriving about 40 minutes before the first bike is due, we drive two to four kilometers either side of it and pick up a spot with a sweeping view over the plains of Bolivia. The air is quite thin and you don't have to walk very far or very hard to, um, to get the heart rate going. So the people up uh, this part of the world are tough, put it that way. They're, uh, the men and women who work and live in this area are strong, strong people for sure. So um, we um, have set up some remote cameras on top of our, um, on top of the van that's overlooking the plains and uh, I'll sort of do a bit of a tighter shot as it comes over a little crest, a little hill um, with some, you know, hopefully some nice blue sky which looks quite blue at the moment. Uh, but there are some clouds floating around and then uh, the remote will do a wide shot with the, with the bike smaller in the bottom of the frame and the blue plane and the plains um, mountains, clouds, it's quite picturesque really nice and peaceful as well so um, yeah and my colleagues uh, Felipe is just uh, assessing his, uh, his final shot as well 
because the bike is due here in the next two or three minutes. I move around as the light is nice and soft as it's only 8am. As usual with the Dakar, the locals are out in numbers. Felipe moves to another spot pretty soon, but I stay there to get the first few quad bikes with the grand view that's surrounding me. Close to a couple of hours into the morning, a local motorbike rides up to Danny, Pablo and I and tells us that a quad bike and pilot have crashed. So the guys radio to the medical team to get the chopper in. As the local who informed us is about to leave, I point to the back seat and myself. He smiles and I jump on the back with my cameras and he takes me to the injured man. There are spectators surrounding him as well as Felipe and some of the other photographers. The photographers have all shot some, shot some images, which I do as well, and one spectator is holding an umbrella above him to get him some shade, and another gives him water. A frustration for me is that others think this is, is great, and are constantly filming the man who is obviously in pain, while others put their phones in, the, in his face for a photo. And I'm not just saying this, but all the photographers present take a few photos, but are more concerned with his well-being and as the medical team arrive, we help in any way we can. I, along with the others, talk about the crash, and they show me their photos of the incident, and we decide that with all the bikes and quads still coming through, and the cars are due very soon, that this double dip in the sand road, which is hard to see at speed, should be clear of any spectators. There are Bolivians of all ages here, and slowly we move them all to a safe distance. I then call our drivers who are still at their original position and they drive over and take over the crowd control. People seem to believe that they, they are much more official than they are because of the uniforms they are wearing. The bikes and the quads continue to come through this dangerous spot, but when a pilot is down, off the vehicle, or a, or a car crash, as, um, as, as we've had here, a warning buzzer on the approaching vehicle fires. It's a great system to warn them. So as they drive up, um, within a certain amount of distance, they just start getting a loud beeping on their, um, on their speaker, on their headphones, on their headsets, or in their car. The medical team morphine up the rider as he's hurt his back and broken a collarbone from the initial diagnosis, so they proceed with extreme caution. Some riders to stop if he's asking if he's okay and if they can do anything, but it's all under control by the medical team. Once he is gone, another team will come out here to recover his quad. So about 40 minutes from his crash, he's on his way to better medical care. The crowd are now back at a safer distance and the race is still going on. We get back to working and taking photos. The focus for the photos will be the double dip in the road. We get into position and wait and the fans respecting our decisions stay at a safe distance, which we all do as well. A few of the younger people walk up to us and ask me for a photo. I guess they don't see too many tall redhead people around here. The other photographers think this is funny and, I, and take photos of all the people taking photos of me all the time. And it's not like I can say no, considering that I take uh, photos of everybody else here. Um, I pose for about three pictures just on, on a short distance and other photographers decide to join in the shot. It's a little bit of fun while in between uh, the riders and, and drivers coming through. The screaming engines and quick gear changes plus the large dust trail on the horizon tell us that the cars are on their way and the first few Peugeots coming through are the buggies which are rear wheel drive and have big bouncy suspension and hardly notice the thing which was such a problem for the quads and the bikes. The leading minis and the Hiluxes are the 4x4s, that's a different story. As they hit the first bump, all is well but the second bump in the road makes the back end lift and if it wasn't for the talent of these drivers, things have, could have gone messy very quickly. I set up my remote on the side of the bump and if you would follow me on Twitter, you would have seen a few of those photos, um, but it will be in the slideshow that I will um, link the show. Um, it will show how high the back end of these vehicles lifted off the ground. Very, very dangerous. We stay in and around this spot for another 20 or so cars, but we have a five to eight hour drive through the mountains to Uyuni on the high plains of Bolivia where the famous salt flats are. We drive a 200 kilometer stretch with only gravel roads, no safety railings and sure death drops if a wrong decision is made. We had to do this during daylight 
as a night drive here, I think, would be crazy. This part of the world doesn't have too much health and safety fanaticism that I'm used to from Australia, England, and the Netherlands. So it's not uncommon to see cars, trucks on the road, which would have been scrapped 30 years ago. The thin air up here at 4,000 meters plus also makes your decisions a bit slower. So I was very happy once we got over this treacherous stretch and the flatter roads became the norm. With 80 kilometers to go until our bivouac and five hours into the drive, we come to a roadblock. Officials here tell us that we have a three hour wait until 9 p.m. just to pass this part of the race because it had to be moved due to, um, it was moved because of the rain. There was some rain um, uh, further up the mountain. Another organization 4x4 is in front of us and he looks like he knows another route, so we follow him until he stops. He gets out of the car and walks up to our driver's window and asks, what are we doing? And if we have permission to go on the race course, we answer yes. We know that a few cars have passed while we were waiting there and roughly know how long it is between race vehicles. So for the next 30 kilometers, we are on dangerous roads. Danny, who we called Danny McQueen, as he's been in this position before, takes over and with great skill, he maneuvers us through the stage with minimal fuss. Even though I'm stressed about the whole thing, because as a sports photographer, I'm used to being on the sidelines of the action and uh, I do not want to be on any part of the course with any drivers or any riders. It's a place I definitely don't feel very comfortable. Once we're out of this race section though, the extra 40 kilometer drive to the bivouac is almost as crazy with the Bolivian drivers on the unpaved roads as it was on the racetrack. It makes the whole day's journey very long and tiring for all involved. Once we arrive, I file the rest of my images from the previous day's shoot, edit all my day's shoot, clean up, eat, set up the tent, of course, um, in the Uni military base, um, which we set up in one of the barracks there with along with the other, the other Dakar staff. And at almost 2 a.m., it's time to pass out. It's not sleeping anymore at this stage of the race. It's passing out. January 8th, 6 a.m., in the 4x4, on the way to the closest fort photo point so far, about 20 kilometers away from Uyuni. It does not matter where we go, the local fans are always there before us. Some have camped out the night before in freezing cold 3,500 meter high altitude just to see this race. This is summer, so I can only imagine that in the winter it's so much tougher up here. A brisk walk will get your heart racing. Because the air is so thin, you will need to breathe more in just to get the oxygen your body needs to function. Picture-wise, this location is not the best again, but like everything at the Dakar, you don't know what's around the next corner. So you have to, be, you have to take the good with the bad. The sun rises over the distant mountains and breaks through the light cloud cover. So I open up to F9 and overexpose a few shots just to get a bit of lens flare, which works well for the first few bikes, but soon the sun is too high. The remote, like the other day, is set up high with the 2470 on top of the 4x4 on the tripod. Some shots work, some don't, like always, I guess. One thing I will mention though is that the remote camera that you shoot with is only an extra and it never should be relied on. Um, that was taught for me by uh, Ben Radford many, many years ago. The camera in your hand is the one you need to get the photos with. And if you get a good photo out of the camera, out of the remote camera, it's a bonus. After a few bikes, I walk up about one kilometer up the road where there's a slight hill with some fans flying flags. They wave their Santa Cruz flag, the colors of the local district, as well as the Bolivian flag. I use them on one side of the frame and the bikes on the road some exposed for the riders and others exposed for the sky, giving a nice silhouette. Once the leading bikes come through, we decide to move to the start line, which is not too far away, and to shoot the leading cars before the day, their day's racing. The Peugeots are there first with some of the minis, but I focus many, most of my attention on Sebastian Loeb and Carlos Sainz, both who have come from rally backgrounds and with a wealth of experience are not shy in front of the cameras. They are real professionals and prepare like I am not there, which is the photos I'm exactly looking for. I've put on the 24mm and the 50mm lenses again because I love the look that they produce. My only annoyance is from some of the local, local Bolivian press 
who take this opportunity to stand next to these great drivers and get their phone, give their phones to their friends and take photos of them standing there. Now, believe me, I fully understand that this little tiny town of a uni at 3,600 meters or almost 12,000 feet altitude does not get many international sports events or stars, but that does not mean that they can abuse their access and do whatever they want. I have to move some people out of the way who just stand there next to the car and, and the drivers while their friend tries to figure out how to use their camera phone. I get the shots I need and with Felipe, we move straight down the starting straight to get them leaving, but it doesn't make any good photos in my opinion, compared especially to the nice portraits that I have already. The race action I have from the previous day is much better, so I only send a few frames today. As we leave the starting area, two girls come up to the car carrying a Bolivian flag and start speaking to me in Spanish. Lost, I look at Pablo and he tells me that they want my autograph on the flag. This is a new experience for me and if you know my surname, all 14 letters of it, I spare them this ordeal and just initial it. I'm pretty sure they were just getting a Dakar from a signature from everybody they could. So still, it felt nice. <laughs> It's now just after midday, and while not a prolific day shooting, I'm happy with the photos I do have. So the four of us head back to the Bouvac in the military base in the heart of a unit to file our images. It's a fairly quick edit in under two hours. So cleaned, packed, and passport stamps all done, I have time to do a quick walk around town. The Dakar organization have the Bolivian and Argentinian border controls set up in the place for all the Dakar staff and riders. So all our stamps, um, documents, you know, what we're traveling with, all that kind of stuff is filled out before. So when we get to the crossing points, it makes it so much easier for us just to, um, to you know, flash our, flash our um, documentation and cross through. Because most of the time these borders are so busy with um, locals just crossing. And as you would understand in a place like this as well, um, there's so much paperwork just to cross over. It makes me appreciate even more the open European borders that we have at the moment. And hopefully we'll keep. As a photographer who's lucky enough to travel to all corners of the globe, you don't often get too, too much time to see the sites. Airports and stadiums, yes. Cities or sites, not really. So with Felipe needing more time to edit, I use my hour before we leave to walk around town eat some Bolivian street food, buy some colorful clothing and gifts, um, and enjoy the festive atmosphere that the closed streets are offering, as well as enjoy a great live band, as you can hear here. It doesn't rain much up this altitude, so it's very dry. There's a fine dust that covers everything and the brick houses are beaten up. There are whole streets with mud brick houses and the only real color comes from the bright traditional clothing being worn by a lot of the women in many of the market stalls selling all manner of things to tourists like me. An hour goes by too quick and it's back to my hard, uncomfortable race seat for the five to six hour drive to the border again. The route though through the mountain range is astounding. 4,200 meters high mountain range that it's a mountain range but it's just got small shrubs all over it no trees no shelter no snow no nothing just dry large mountains everywhere and yet there's still some houses mud houses live up here they must be some of the toughest <laughs> to live up in this area unbelievable and the road we're driving on feels like it was a goat trail not that long ago and uh, it looks like they've spent a bit of money just clearing it up and making it but it still is rough as any road I've driven on Felipe and I definitely feel like we're in the back of a washing machine going on this road. Huh? There's no 
editing in the car here, that's for sure. <laughs> As we progress, we see clouds which look so close you can almost touch them. As you wind through this part of the world, you take a corner and you enter what looks like a faint grey sheet, but it's actually a cloud just above your head. Then you drive and it begins to rain, then another turn and the rain stops and your view from what feels like the top of the world opens up again. We enter Potosi, again, pronunciation, I apologize, but I'll try it again. We enter Potosi, which is a run-down mining town. Stopping at traffic lights and street corners, I get a tiny glimpse into some of the houses here and it's very basic living. Single rooms with beds and not much more. It looks like a tough life up here and not just because of the altitude and the weather. The scattering of single room mud brick houses line our mountain descent and as the air thickens, the landscape noticeably evolves. The main feature being the tree height increases closer to sea level we get. The long drive is as thought-provoking as it is beautiful. We arrive at the border town in Argentina where we stayed only two nights ago, even though it feels like a week has passed. Same deal, different hotel. Four men in a single room. I get top bunk again. I do some more editing from the previous day's um, shooting. I try to write down some of my notes for the podcast, but like Danny, Pablo and Felipe, I'm exhausted after another long day. At 2am, I put the screen down and pass out with my alarm set from welcomed sleeping. Six hours till my 2001 Space Odyssey theme music for my alarm tone wakes me up from my coma. 9th of Jan. For the first time this race, the sun is up before we leave the photo point. Thanks to my journey last night, we have just over an hour to go. Already thinking about the next leg in our journey, the five to six hour trip to Salta, we decide to go to a photo point which will allow us to leave during the race. The other three spots on offer from, um, from our media um, places we can shoot from would have to wait until the race finishes at 9 p.m. So with the drive that we have, it's not really an option. Arriving at 11 a.m., the bikes are due at about midday. So we drive around and look for a good spot and as usual, the local fans are there ready for their day of racing. The road runs between two hills partitioned into smaller farmed areas separated by one meter high stone stacked walls. But the spectators have covered them with plastic tarps and made tents in and around them. So for me, it's not making a good image. While there are hundreds of people everywhere, they are scattered around. And for my, fo for my photos, I either like a huge crowd or very few. So this spot is not really for me, even though some fans with flags add color and place the image well. There is one man dressed in a traditional Northern Argentinian or Bolivian clothing playing a Erke and Kaya. That's Erke, E-R-K-E and Kaya, K-A-J-A. This is an indigenous large bull horn or cow horn that you blow into holding with one hand and with the other hand he holds a leather drum and taps it with a padded drumstick. He plays as the bikes come past and while it's not exactly my style of music I appreciate the skill needed. He finishes a song and I put my cameras down to give him some applause. Alone. <laughs> but the other 50 or so people in the vicinity join in. His daughter waves an Argentinian flag behind him, which of course I shoot, and you'll find an image in one of my links. About 20 bikes go through, and then they seem to stop. 30 minutes pass, and no other bikes, so something must be wrong, as they should have been every 3 minutes at most by now. I walk the 1 kilometer or so back to the 4x4, and find out that the sur surrounding rain has caused a river to flood, in part of the course. So now we have to wait of news for the restart. While this is going on, we eat some local empanadas, which is a pastry wrapped around chicken or beef and vegetables stuffed either, then either fried or baked. For the British and Aussies listening, just think a small Cornish pasty or pasty. They are delicious. I eat five, but I could eat 20. <laughs> 
The place we buy them from is a square, single room, mud brick house with maybe three or four meters wide with two single beds and an elderly couple with what looks like their daughters and grandchildren visiting them. The house is a few feet away from the racetrack, but my guess is that they don't get too many visitors in this part of the world apart from when the Dakar is on. It's such an isolated place and this house, I can just picture it now with no people around it, is just a complete isolation, complete quiet and also some of the most amazing clear skies you will ever see. I shoot a few pictures of them of course as well, including their outdoor kitchen with an open fire and pots and pans which look at least 40 years old. There's also another section where they have a little outhouse and a stick hanging from the um, from the, almost the roof and you can see the splattering of blood where, where they um, skin and kill their animals which they eat on a regular basis. So again, it's very different from the my usual uh, lifestyle and uh, I'm guessing most of yours as well. I don't know how many of my listeners actually uh, slaughter their own animals. Send me an email if you do anyway. Um, we decide to move for a new angle away from this section as if the race starts again. So we noticed that there was a crest in the road a few kilometers down. As we get there, the wind is blowing and you can hear the sounds from miles away, but not from the direction that the oncoming race is. So without notice, 20 minutes after we arrive in the new spot, the first car comes over a little hill and we make a mad scramble to grab our kit, but it's too late. Both Felipe and I missed the leading car today. We quickly get our stuff together and walk to different places and proceed to shoot the cars. Some come as they come over the hill, some as they make uh, come over a little jump, some with a remote, which is a nice, um, nice and wide, uh, with the clouds littering the sky, and then um, others with the remote close to the road and using uh, some ground rocks as a foreground. A few hours in, and it's time to head off for another long journey. The majority of the road is winding, so editing the car is not an option because staring at a screen and using Photoshop in a swaying, bouncing four-wheel drive um, doesn't do the head or the stomach any good. It's a good chance to enjoy some landscapes and listen to some podcasts. We pass some bikes and cars from the race on the road to Salta. The whole journey has people lining the roads from every age group again, families with newborns to grandparents sitting on roofs of cars, in the back of pickups or utes for my fellow Aussies, to camping tents, all just to get a glimpse of this great free show. My arm is tired from waving. If we stop at traffic lights, people run up to our heavily branded 404 to get photos next to it or ask for free stuff. It's a Saturday night as we approach Salta, so the Add the Dakar show to an already traffic-heavy city and you get one major jam. The organization 4x4 gets us some extra access, but these single-laned roads can only go so fast. It's almost 10 a.m. when we arrive at the Bivouac, and as we get closer to the entrance of the convention center, which is home to thousands of us with this traveling spectacle, the fanned crowds become denser and more vocal. Locals are using every available tree and fence for any advantage to see the vehicles arriving. And of course, we wave to almost all of them as they have been there for hours, so it's the least you can do. Once inside, I get my editing done, I'm cleaned up, dinner is eaten, and set up my tent in a media hall, which um, is a nice convention center, so it's got nice soft carpet. And oh, it feels like such a luxurious place to have carpet under your tent. At 2 a.m., my phone catches my eye and I realize how late it is. The sound from everyone and anyone in these tents is echoing with snoring of others exhausted by this race so far. Tomorrow is a rest day, so I'll be catching up on editing, which I um, have got a few things to do over from the previous few days. Writing, of course, for this podcast, expenses, which is um, always good to keep on top of, and other administration stuff, which is, you know, life goes on back home as well, so I've got to keep up to date with that, plus shooting the mechanics, working on their temporary garages, and getting ready for the next day's race. So while it's not a race day, there's still plenty of stuff to do. 10th of January. Warning, the following day has graphic content, which may make you wince. 
The habit of waking up early means no sleeping. So I get the computer started first thing at about 7 a.m. and start work straight away. Five hours sleep, even though I would have liked to sleep in. The laundry opened at 8 a.m., so I take my dust and mud-laden clothes for a well-overdue cleaning. On the way back to the media room, while wearing my flip-flops, I miss a small steel bar sticking out of some broken concrete and smash my left large toe on it. And looking down, in shock, I see part of my large nail lifted off. Then, a breath later, blood starts to flow and I instantly walk to the medical tent to get treatment. Again, sorry for this if anyone's eating during this time, but I must uh, have to add that into because it was a major part of my Dakar experience. I feel very stupid, of course, for what could have been an injury which ruined my Dakar. The medical team do a great job and my bleeding toe is cleaned up and strapped up. Then, with a small plastic bag full of ice, I lift my leg and let it rest on my aching toe. I use the rest of the day for what is now a recovery day instead of being a photography day as well. Not mobile, I'm unsure of how the next week will play out. I sit at the computer with colleagues and Dakar staff coming to up to me all day and asking how I'm doing and considering the reaction in everyone's face, it doesn't hurt as much, but I'm more embarrassed of the stupidity of my mistake. I spend the day editing and doing administration stuff and writing down notes for this show. And of course, I contact my bosses, hello Steve and Martin, if you're listening, to let them know the situation and that I'll not be taking any photos today. Sleeping in the convention hall is comfortable and with the carpet and air conditioning, it's not very Dakar, but with the injury, I'm happy to stay in the media center for another 24 hours. But when speaking to the drivers and Felipe about the next day, we all decide that we should head off in the afternoon to a one-star hotel about an hour away from tomorrow's photo point. So much for the needed rest. Reluctantly and slowly, I pack up my kit and get to the 4x4 again. Taking more painkillers than I'd like to take, Kaifate, again, pronunciation apology there, is our destination, and we arrive close to midnight after a four-hour drive. Our drivers, both Pablo and Danny, feel part of their Argentinian stereotype and love a good, fat, juicy steak. So we go straight to a restaurant for some food in the town square. The town is a popular tourist town for Argentinians and uh, Argentinian families, so finding a place open is easy, and they order a local dish of roasted goat and seasoned potatoes, which I must admit is cooked to perfection. A slight distraction from the pain in my toe. It's good not to be eating out of a service station or the bivouac food, so this restaurant is a great little treat a week into the event. We find a hotel, and after this great meal, check in and tick tock it's one o'clock the painkillers are flowing getting into the top bunk like i had done in the previous uh few occasions was not as easy as uh, i'd like um, i thought maybe i couldn't resist the top bunk being a big kid at heart i'm looking forward to tomorrow's shoot despite the injury as we'll be in canyons of orange and brown rocks where the vehicles will be driving in between so again an eventful day considering there wasn't much photos being taken. Yeah, horrible day really, considering uh, my throbbing toe. I hope that made sense. It's a bit different to what I've done before, so I'm curious to read and hear responses from you guys. A massive thanks to my steak-loving Argentinian friends and drivers, Pablo and Danny, and of course, my Dakar brother, Felipe. We took thousands of pictures over the years, but our set-up tourist picture from the official Dakar Salt Flat Sculpture Photographer in a uni is my favourite photo of the three races we covered together. And I hope Berlin is treating you well, mate. A little housekeeping, and it's nice to get some feedback and things people are liking. So I want to send a big thanks to fellow sports snappers, Matt Sadler, Chris Whiteoak, Young Tech Lim, Tim Murdoch, Mart Atkins, and David M, who have all written some nice words in email form since I began the show. This is part one of two, and as a first timer on this kind of thing, I really hope that the second part will be a bit quicker to edit now that I have some idea of what I'm doing. I will get part two out in the next week, and now that I've said it on the show, I have to do it. 
If Twitter is something you like, then I am on at AllSportsSnapper or my website, AllSportsSnapper.com. My Twitter feed contains no politics or religion. I rather enjoy those discussions, but only face-to-face. And this is just a sports photography feed. Um, I post a little bit of my more interesting work, as well as some of the best images from my Getty colleagues and some other guys as well. Um, So it's a great place to get a somewhat regular sports image on your feed. If you have gone as far to subscribe to the show in either iTunes or SoundCloud, it would be great if you could write a short review as well. Um, That would be greatly appreciated. Last thing, observe, listen and practice because your best photo could be one frame away. Thank you.